Hello, everyone. Welcome to Pensive Politics with Mr. Watson. I am indeed your host, Christian Watson. And today I have probably one of the most interesting guests I've ever had on the show and someone who I'm surprised that I've been able to get so early into my budding aspirations and career. Miss Marion Williamson, a former presidential candidate. Um, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say Oprah spiritual advisor because that's been in contention, but she has done no, work I'm with not Oprah. Oprah. Well, she's done work with Oprah in the past. And uh, again, one of the reasons why I'm happy to have her is because her ascension as a political candidate represented something so starkly different from the common status quo American class. She talked about philosophy and how things make us feel rather than sticking to um, boring coarse grain charts which reduce people to numbers rather than the living beings, the, the dynamic living beings they are, I should say. So Ms. Williamson, just thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I very much uh, agree with the way you just described uh, the need for a conversation that goes beyond the mere external um, descriptions of what a human being is. Absolutely. And so let's let's start on that basis, because I found from my study of you and your work that your political ideology is simply an extension of your metaphysical understanding. You call yourself a new age metaphysician. And so it's very interesting because a lot of people's political ideology is simply an extension of their understanding, their apprehension of empirical facts. They tend to not grasp or want to interact with the rational part, the rational soul, as Aristotle would say. But you are primarily starting with the rational part and you're going into the empirical part. I believe you in an uh, interview with Oprah in the 90s, you mentioned a she mentioned a quote from your book Illuminata that said that our goal is to become the highest versions of ourselves which to me echoes a sentiment that has been shared throughout hundreds of thousands of years of philosophy. So can you explain to me how your spiritual and metaphysical understanding interacts with your political understanding <clears throat> and which complements which or which comes first? I don't wanna to be too presumptuous. <laughs> well, first of all, I have never described myself as a new age metaphysician. Um, I think the term new age has been so um, caricatured and uh, while I understand, I definitely, uh, as a spiritual seeker, as a woman for whom my spiritual journey is the most important thing to me, certainly there's metaphysics. All that meta means is greater than. But I never, I never describe myself as a new age metaphysician. You know, I'm a student of A Course in Miracles and I'm a Jew. Uh, a Course in Miracles is not a religion. It's just based on universal spiritual themes. So the actual spiritual principles that, that mean something to me personally and that I talk about and write about are very traditional spiritual and religious values. So there's nothing quote unquote new age. That term has really been turned into um, silliness and at this point even worse. And it's really used to minimize and um, and and under undercut something which is part of a serious uh, religious and spiritual conversation. There is a difference between the word irrational and non-rational. The Course in Miracles says love restores reason and not the other way around. There's nothing reasonable about destroying your, your planet. There's nothing reasonable about spending so many more of your resources on ways to kill each other than on ways to uplift one another. There's nothing reasonable about putting financial, uh, financial gain for corporate entities before the needs of children and men and women to thrive uh, uh, physically and, uh, and, and culturally. So 
the, the, the spiritual journey is not one in which your brain cells are somehow diminished. It doesn't make follow the intelligence of the heart. The heart has an intelligence, just like the brain has an intelligence. And when you separate the intelligence of the brain from the intelligence of the heart, when you separate the intelligence of reason from the intelligence of love, then actually you end up with consequences that are not reasonable at all. Understood. And my, my apologies about the New Age characterization. I suppose that was just a characterization that was put upon you by the media and everything. And that's not fair. So my That's kind of my point, yeah, though. Yeah. Thank you for giving me the opportunity my, to correct it, because my, that's exactly yeah. my point. My sincerest apologies. I meant no offense by that. Um, but so yeah, no, you, I knew that I knew that you. Yeah, but you so you pose a very interesting uh, theory here And the Course on Miracles, from my understanding was basically, you know, it's, uh, it was said to have been channeled by Jesus to invent a new understanding of spirituality, of, although, of course, a lot of the principles within the Course on Miracles can be taken without, you know, people necessarily being uh, spiritual, I suppose, because a lot of the principles in the Course on Miracles can be, just be applied to be aphorisms of everyday life. But you make this interesting distinction between the, the irrational and the non-rational. So what would you say falls under the non-rational as opposed to the irrational? Because my understanding would be that the irrational directly interacts with some sort of defect in reason, whereas the non-rational perhaps escapes our ability to measure or calculate the subject of the non-rational. Am I incorrect in saying this? Or To me, the non-rational is simply when it's not that you're in any way undervaluing the importance or the value of reason, but when you realize that there are some things that your rational mind cannot know. If I say, dear God, I, I don't know where I should go. I don't know if I should move to Atlanta. I don't know if I should move to Boston. There are many of us who feel that there's a guidance system of the heart. The Christians call it the Holy Spirit. There are different ways to name it. The idea of an intuitional guidance system that comes from the intelligence of the heart that my, I can't reasonably know, you know, my, rash, my reason alone cannot tell me whether Boston or Atlanta would be a better idea. It's not an irrational decision to go to Boston, but if you really feel your heart is just telling you, something is telling you, go to Boston, go to Boston. It's not that it's an irrational decision, but it's a non-rational. It came from some other place in your knowing. You know, we, they used to call it mother's intuition, right? There are intuitive faculties. We all have times when you just have a sense of something. The muses are talking to you. It's just the idea that we are multidimensional beings and there are all kinds of ways that we receive and pick up information. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, uh, it, there was an old quote that I saw. I forgot who said it, but it was, there are things that we learn by knowledge and the things we know by the, learn by the heart. And so I just think exactly. that's exactly yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's a all very, we're talking about here. Yeah, that's a very interesting distinction because, you know, Plato made a distinction between knowledge and opinion. And for Plato, a lot of uh, his understanding of philosophy was rooted up in the forms, things that we cannot apprehend with our sight, but things that, you know, can correspond to the world in some senses. So uh, my question- well, no, 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 that, yeah. if, you see, if you see an airplane take off and then you see it go off into the sky, it appears to your physical eyes as though it's getting smaller. Well, obviously the airplane is not getting smaller. So there are all kinds of instances where the physical senses alone are not the deepest evidence of ultimate reality. Absolutely. I, I entirely agree with you entirely. <clears throat> um, so you mentioned that there are certain things that are unreasonable and you apply your understanding of things that are not reasonable to your political um, beliefs. 
So you mentioned um, corporate uh, or um, profit gain, you know, profit motive and everything. Um, do you think that there is, do you think that profit is oftentimes characterized in very mechanical monetary um, terms, uh, whereas the more abstract ideas of profit, which root up, manifest in our lives every day, um, uh, may be neglected at the expense of characterizing profit at a as sort of like monetary. So like what I mean by that is that I have profit in engaging this conversation with you because you're an interesting person and I'm learning. Um, I obviously am not getting not getting any money, but I think that a lot of people kind of reduce capitalism sometimes to monetary mechanical profit, whereas others don't realize there's an entire realm of profit moving and animating our actions for many different uh, things. So what would you say about that? I would, say, I would agree with everything you said, except when you brought capitalism into it, because capitalism is talking about economics. But if you removed uh, the word capitalism from what you just said, I agree with you entirely. There are many kinds of, uh, many ways that value enters into our lives. And the money you get from something is, is just one of them. There's also, will I feel good about myself if I do this? Will I have fun if I do this? Will it make me feel that I'm contributing to the world in, uh, uh, if I do this. And sometimes you'll take less money for a job, but you'll get more profit as you, as you describe it. You'll get more gain from it. So absolutely, we should talk about profit as a society in, much, in a much more expa expanded sense. And that's part of the problem that I have with the dominant political conversation. When there is a discussion of profit, it tends to only be about economic profit. And sometimes what happens, and here's where the conversation about uh, unfettered capitalism comes in. And, and I have, to me, there's a big distinction between capitalism and unfettered capitalism. But when an unfettered capitalist talks about profit, sometimes, you know, it's like the line in the Bible, what profit is a man if he gains, gains gold, but he loses his soul. So sometimes we gain certain aspects of our culture, gain financial profit, but at the expense of things that we must never abide by, such as hungry children or a destroyed environment or uh, diminished opportunities for people to, to get in the game. And that needs to be the conversation. That's, that's exactly what's lacking in our political conversation when we talk about profit. We have to talk about profit in a much more expanded way. Absolutely. Um, would you say that uh, you, you mentioned this distinction between unfettered capitalism and capitalism itself? I think it's very interesting because personally, um, I'm a laissez-faire capitalist. Mm -hmm. So personally, I want people's creative and free energies to be freed up as much as possible from regulation so they can do, um, they can just exert their wills as best as they possibly can. Now, I understand there are could potentially be pitfalls with that. I mean, there's uh, the issue of consumer protections, all that kind of stuff. Um, but do you think that capitalism solely takes into account the um, monetary profit or in the genesis of a capitalistic action, like when you go to start your business or when you go to create a product, is there some part of your soul that is interacting with the product, that's interacting with your sort of uh, the uh, things that you're producing? Because Locke, Locke once said that uh, uh, man's property comes from mixing labor with nature. So is there some sort of spiritual component, do you think, to the genesis of capitalism? And has capitalism just kind of moved away from that with cronyism, with subsidies and with things that are have incentivized bad behavior. 
Adam Smith himself, the, the main and original articulator of free market capitalism, said free market capitalism cannot exist outside an ethical center. Without Absolutely. ethics, capitalism becomes a destructive force on the planet. And that is exactly how the Pope Francis has described it. During the 1970s, for instance, I think we were still living at a time in this country where there was enough regulatory, um, enough uh, regulatory imposition on capitalism that those who were seeking bottom line money for stockholders were kept in their lane. But there were also, it's just like, it's just like when you're driving in a car, there are also stop signs and there are also lanes and you can't pass in certain lanes. And so it was understood as a society and it was codified in law and regulation that the stockholders were important, but that there were other stakeholders in the system as well. The workers were stakeholders. The environment is a stakeholder. The community is a stakeholder. That's when through regulation, you talk about laissez-faire. Well, at what point do you stop? Because on one hand, you said, I'm a laissez-faire capitalist, but then you said, well, of course there have to be some regulations. That's all we're talking about. It's that category of some regulations. And what happened in the 1980s was an orgiastic drive to deregulate. It was, and it was promoted by people who felt that the financial game of a small group of stockholders was to their benefit. And the lie that was propagated was the idea that if you just deregulated enough and busted unions enough and got rid of anything that protected the rights of anything other than the CEO and stockholder class, that this would be great because they would create jobs. It was all about that. It was, we were told it was job creation. This was your whole trickle down economic theory. And then the idea was that this would trickle down and lift all boats. Well, this has been 40 years now. And after 40 years, the jury has in. It has not lifted all boats. It has left millions of people without even a life vest. It has caused a massive transfer of wealth into the hands of 1%. And now, it, was that problem inherent in capitalism? No, actually. I don't think the problem is inherent in capitalism. The problem is inherent in human greed. It's inherent in a lack of human ethics. It's inherent in a lack of willingness on the part of human being to apply moral principle to their political and economic activities. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, and um, yeah, so I, I think that um, if, as far as regulation goes, um, I think that there has to be ethical regulation rather than um, yeah. government regulation. Um, yeah, that's hold why. on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold yeah. on. So yeah. what are you saying? You are saying that there should be ethical regulation other than government regulation. So you're saying people should just do the right thing. Well, I think that a CEO's rights or a worker's rights ends where the property or the rights of another begins. Okay, um, well, okay, but hold on if I may. Yes. What you have in a deregulated economy is that the CEO, and remember before the 1980s, CEOs couldn't even be paid in stock options. There was such protection. So today a CEO is hired by the board. If you're talking about a large corporate entity, the CEO is hired by their board to increase the short-term profit of the stockholders. So there could be all kinds of a situation where the CEO would say, well, I don't think we should do that because it could hurt people. That actually goes above the minimum standard for safety in water or safety in the air or safety in the food. 
Now, if you don't have a governmental regulation, then it, in most of most cases, the board would come back to the CEO, say to the CEO, you're not doing the job you were hired to do, which is to increase stockholder value, and then that CEO would likely to be fired. That's why of governmental regulations are important. It's important that the government be there to guard against overreach by unfettered capitalist forces who are putting the financial gain of the stockholder above the other aspects of profit, which has to do with the safety and the well-being of human beings and environment. Absolutely. And I, I think that that's a very, that's a very noble sentiment. And I think that I don't think, however, that corporations are incentivized to hurt people. I think that corporations. No, but if the corporation, the, the whole idea of trickle down economics was not that there was an incentive to hurt people. No, no, no CEO of a major corporation in the United States is getting up in the morning and trying to figure out how to hurt a child. That's not what we're talking about at all. But they do wake up and have been bred to believe that that is not their concern. And that right there is the ethical break. So as long as you make your bottom line short-term profitability for your stockholders, then and if that's the social and governmental consensus, then you have, you have let yourself off the hook for any kind of, of ethical consideration for the well-being of people. Now, what then follows from that is I say, okay, well, that's charity. That's where charity comes in and other things that the government might do. But when you're talking about such gargantuan multi-billion dollar powers, there's no amount of product charity that can, that can compensate for the basic lack of economic and environmental and social justice, the injustices that occur when unfettered capitalism is given the keys to the kingdom to the extent to which it has been since the 1980s. All the people like myself are talking about is get back in your lane that no car on the road should be able to drive wherever they want, at what speed, whatever speed they want, in whatever direction they want, even at the expense of the guaranteed safety of others on the road. Oh yeah, I, I understand. So do you believe that there is a public good that corporations have tended to incidentally um, interact with in a negative way? Um, because you mentioned um, the, uh, people who may be poor, people who may be affected by certain environmental actions by corporations. Do you believe that public good or something of that sort is being sort of tampered with by unfettered forces and therefore it's the onus of the government to rein them in? Is that what your position would be? Yes, that balance is what, you know, the, the whole, it, it, one of the first principles of the United States is the balance of individual liberty and a concern for the common good. That's a very, that's the balance. When, listen, we're going through that right now, talking about the tech companies who say, we don't wanna have certain hate speech and we're not gonna allow it to be on our platforms versus the rights of free speech. So that struggle is inherent in our freedom. Do we want somebody to be able to make a lot of money because they're gonna build a factory and have an entrepreneurial process and uh, start a, a product? Of course we do, that, and that's capitalism at its best. Do we, however, want them to be able to have an unsafe workplace, bust the union, uh, spew carcinogens into the water 
that's going to uh, cause cancer in people down the river. No, we don't. And that's what that that's what we're always striving for or should be striving for is that balance. And when you go too far in any one direction, then you're really uh, undercutting what should be the primary American value. Interesting. Yeah, no, I, I think that I think that the, the biggest problem in our political conversation right now is that, you know, these views are not articulated as well as you articulate them. Uh, a lot of people, when they see progressives, at least from what from the, the circles that I'm in, they think that progressives are trying to menacingly, you know, take things away from them or hurt them or harm them. And I simply say, you know, this is a conflict of values here. We are, I think a lot of us are primed to believe that our values are the correct kind of values and that those who don't like our values or hold our values, they're bad or they're evil. And so I think that when you uh, articulate it very well, um, it makes it makes people a little bit less scared to apprehend things because I think there is a lot of fear in our political conversation from what I've seen at least. I don't think it should be a conflict of values. And at its best, it's not a conflict of values. President Eisenhower said, American mind at its best is both liberal and conservative. And remember when he was president, he was a Republican president, there was a 90% marginal tax rate. When I was growing up, this wasn't about a conflict of values, that the value we held to was what I said before, was that that balance between individual liberty and concern for the common good. I think the media more than anything else is what has done such a terrible disservice by putting people in these silos. They found that there was more money to be made through a kind of crossfire conversation. That's why I wanted to talk to you today. Everybody's just talking to people who already agree with them in the most extreme range of what they believe. And that's the problem we're having. When you actually talk about people who are who, who, who are sharing values and just are emphasizing in their conversation one of the two poll to places on these necessary poles. This is the yin and the yang of, 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 of capitalism in an ethical society. That's what we need more of. And when I was growing up, that conversation existed. It wasn't a fight. It was just a, a contest of ideas and an understanding that every generation in every situation, we had to struggle to get the balance right. Right. Now, when I when I listen to your ideas about corporations in America, I am taken back to an ancient Greek dialogue called uh, by, by Xenophon called Hiero, the Hiero, when which he talks about the different kinds of tyranny and how one can be tyrannical, a tyrannical life, what 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 you might have, um, and I, I I hear you saying that you that corporations by stepping over their lane can possibly become or induce some sort of form of tyranny. Um, the, the primary thing that I think of when I think of when I think of that assertion is that corporations are simply given legitimacy, yeah, by their stockholders, but also by the corp the people who buy their products. Um, there's a reason uh, why certain um, social actions have caused corporations to immediately go back on certain things they may have done. Um, the power of the public purse is incredibly, incredibly powerful. So I don't, I, I think that corporations get their power primarily from public assent rather than from having this <laughs> sort of metaphysical authority over people. And I think that they're unable to do unethical things by the government. 
by cronyism. And that's absolutely wrong. When Elon Musk or when Walmart are getting billion dollar subsidies and they're insulated from the rules of the free market, then they can pretty much do a lot of things that would be wrong. Um, so do you think the, the solution may just be reining back the amount of government involved in corporations or do you believe it? No, I think it's the opposite. I think we need to go back to regular, uh, to reasonable regulation. And no, I, I never said, nor do I believe that uh, corporations get their uh, power from some uh, metaphysical source. That's not where they get their power. Let's look at something like the Oxycontin crisis, okay? Do I think big pharmaceutical companies should exist? Of course I do. Do I think that they do a lot of good? Of course I do. But do I know what everybody knows now, which is that attorneys general all over the country have indicted predatory pharmaceutical executives who knowingly, knowingly oversold OxyContin, misled doctors, misled pharmacists, and misled the public. It wasn't the public's job to have to figure all this out. They were prescribed the drug by their doctors. They were prescribed the drug by their pharmacists. They assumed and should be able to assume that the FDA is like on it and looking at this and making sure that nobody's going to be doing anything that they shouldn't be doing. That's why there's a multi-billion dollar settlement here with the Sackler family and Pardue uh, um, uh, pharmaceuticals, although I think it was merely a slap on the hand. So yeah, it was not the public. The public shouldn't have to figure this out. The public shouldn't have to worry about the fact that our drinking water is so contaminated. No, it's not. When you say, well, the public shouldn't buy it. No, the, no American citizen in the richest country in the world should have to wake up in the morning worried that my, my child, when I get some drinking water out of the uh, faucet, I might be giving them carcinogens that could cause cancer. Not, that's why you have a government. That's the purpose of government. Part of the purpose of government is to uh, care for the common good. Now, should the government should also, in, in ways that are reasonable, support entrepreneurial activity, including corporate success? Absolutely. However, we really need to take this away from theory and look what's happening in this country. Right now, because of the billions of dollars that these corporate entities are able to uh, use to influence our politics, the, uh, the advocacy for that short-term profit, completely disconnected from any moral or ethical consideration, is given far more weight in Congress than does advocacy for the health and well-being of people. And no, the burden should not have to be on people to figure out, well, should I pay my water bill? Because I don't know if the water's safe. There, that's a perfect example. So no, uh, Americans have a right to assume that certain things are safe. Uh, and I, yes, I, I, I agree with you that I don't think people should have to be in fear of the, whether their water. Yeah. <laughs> well, obviously, or they're being prescribed oh, medicine oh, that oh, is going to to. Uh, call, I mean, four hundred fifty thousand opioid deaths. So uh, we need to get out of this like this fairy tale fantasy about how wonderful these uh, corporations are. If we would just let them do their thing, then they would always do the right thing. You cannot say that about the NRA. You cannot say that about fossil fuel companies. You cannot say that about chemical companies. You cannot say that about food companies. You cannot say that about big agricultural companies or health insurance companies or defense contractors. And it doesn't make us anti-capitalism to simply face that fact. 
Yeah, no, I, and I absolutely, I, I understand that sentiment, absolutely. Um, and, and I appreciate that. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think, because I, this is a very hard moral quandary here, because on one hand, in the sort of framework, if you are a little bit squeamish about like regulation, you could be a chalked up possibly theoretically, and I'm not saying with you, but theoretically, one could be chalked up to not really caring about the plight of the people who may be affected by these things. And if you do care about regulation on the other side, um, some could possibly say that um, you are a little bit too overbearing and you, and, you know, someone has a sort of uh, over, overarching idea of what they want something to be rather than how it is. So it's a very difficult moral quandary to handle. But it's not, but that is what politics should be. And I, and I, when you say it's a moral quandary, I just think it's an American, it is the inherent struggle of individual and, and uh, economic rights. And I think that once again, that shouldn't be seen as a conflict of values because it's not. Because if, if an ethical person is involved in that conversation, then we shouldn't have to assume that either person doesn't care about people, that either person doesn't care about, or that either person doesn't care about business being able to prosper. It should be just a contest of ideas and like anything else in life, like let's not go too far over here, let's not go too far over there, but it should, that decision-making should not be uh, determined by how much money people were able uh, to put into the coffers of politicians' political campaigns. And that's what we have right now. So yeah, so you mentioned money in politics, and I, I, I've, uh, I've listened to a lot of people talk about this issue, or this, this, this uh, concept, because uh, I'm personally, I'm not entirely sure if money in politics is particularly an issue. Insofar as, <laughs> I, I think, uh, I think the wills of politicians is more, or more of the issues. If a politician can be bought, they probably don't have a lot of ethical strength in the first place, and that's what. Yeah, more they. Yeah, thank Kristen. Kristen, wake up. Okay, Kristen, look at that. Wake up here. I mean, the, you know the money that is spent, the multi-billions. Of, I, I want you to read a book called Dark Money. I want you to read a book called Democracy and Chains. Um, what has happened in this country primarily since the 1990s, the undue influence of money on our political system is undeniable. Much of it dark money coming from places that cannot even be traced. But is, I, I think, is the money the issue or is it the lack of will of the politicians that's the issue? Because, you know, Elizabeth Warren, Elizabeth Warren has turned down lobbyists almost time and time again. Uh, and many it, do. And many, and, many, many political candidates now, it's all over their website. I do not take corporate money. I didn't take corporate money. Of course, with my views, no corporation wanted to give me any money. <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it wasn't hard to turn, you know, do. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the big thing right now. Do you or do you not receive corporate money? And now because of the Citizens United decision, the, the politician can say, hey, I don't take any corporate money. But really because of Citizens United, the corporations themselves can flood the airwaves with ads. They don't even have to, they don't even have to give money. You know, it's not money in politics today, the legalized bribery that is the system today isn't about somebody going into a parking lot and they're going to receive a few thousand dollars in their pocket and put it. That's not what this is about. This is much more sophisticated than that. It's about huge ads all over the airwaves and all over Facebook that have to do with issues ads that are actually targeting what the huge corporate entity or moneyed interest needs to target in order to either get rid of somebody who doesn't advocate for their interests or in order to elect someone who does. Now let's in say- that an individual couldn't possibly do. 
Now, let's say Citizens United was overturned and you could publicly disclose money and dark money was pushed out of politics by some okay. legislator. Let's, let's assume that for a moment. Okay. The advocacy simply switches to a different medium. My problem is we're attacking the medium and not we're not attacking the, the, the sort what of- What would it switch to? What do you say? Well, what I'm saying is money is simply a single way to influence someone. There are plenty of other ways to influence people. Of course, money is- what, what, Give me an example. Well, so- uh, I, for example, um, you could engage in political action to primary a candidate if you don't want, and this is what we're seeing happening all across the country with the candidates, people who voted uh, against uh, for Donald Trump's impeachment. You could engage in uh, primarying, primary. Listen, that's called politics. That's called democracy. That's what? not a bad thing. That's a good thing. That's the people expressing their will. That's the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be that your citizens who are your constituents rise up. And if they don't like what you did, they primary you. That's democracy. That's not corruption. That's democracy. That's a good thing. Well, but yes, I, it's not a, it's not corruption whatsoever. And uh, it's just, I'm not entirely sure if getting rid of one medium is going to cause politicians to be benevolent. Even, even you know, before money was so involved in politics, there were other ulterior interests that politicians were involved in. I mean, the, the idea of public choice economics measures that politicians are always going to follow their own interest. Yeah, so but, the money is yeah. simply a single way to manifest that. Yeah, but this, it's a gargantuan corruption that has occurred in our society, the undue influence of money on the system. And you can't, democracy doesn't even have a chance to thrive. Uh, within that, uh, within that corrupt system of of corporate influence on both the Democratic and the Republican Party at this point, I I understand. And uh, again, these are the conversations we need to be having. And again, I'm, I appreciate your openness and I appreciate the engagement. Uh, it's it means a lot to me. Um, so you know, we're going to wrap up in a few minutes here. But uh, I just wanted to ask you, you know, what is the biggest lesson that you learned as a political candidate, if you learned anything whatsoever, what was the oh, best, uh, if I you, uh, because I mean, you're, you're a brilliant woman in my, you're a brilliant woman yeah. in my opinion, and you have thank a lot you. of wisdom. Right um, back at and, you, honey. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. You're a brilliant woman. So, I mean, I, I, I think that you could actually teach things to the political system uh, rather than teach things to you. Um, but what have you learned, if anything, from the, from your political candidacy? that George Washington was correct when he warned us about political parties. George Washington gave his farewell address. He said the political parties <clears throat> could form factions of men who care more about their parties, their faction, than they care about uh, the, the country. And I saw a distinct difference between the dignity, nobility, and intelligence of the voters which is one political universe and should be the primary political universe and all other aspects should serve that. That's the founding vision of democracy versus a system, a very corporatized political system um, based on money and power in which a pre-prescribed conversation and a pre-prescribed group of people who are allowed into the conversation dominates creating an illusion of freedom and an illusion of democracy. And that's a real problem. That's a serious problem. Whether you're a liberal or a conservative, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, this is something for all of us as a generation of Americans to be very concerned about. How we dismantle that, I don't know, because I've seen how locked up it is. But there are steps we can take. 
the NR1 uh, democracy bill that had been passed in the House will now have a Senate version, getting rid of gerrymandering, automatic voter registration, anything we can do to expand the exercise of democracy would help. Anything we can do to uh, get rid of the undue influence of money would help. And just greater and greater awareness among the people. Um, I think so much of the pain and suffering that so many people <clears throat> have experienced would not have occurred and would be very much lessened now if the real deeper conscience and aspirations of the American people on both sides of the political spectrum have more of a say in what happens. I, I think we can fully agree on, on this, on the principle of this sentiment, because again, I mean, both parties' processes are controlled by top-down people. The partyarchy, as the, the late Samuel Edward Konkin III, who founded the philosophy of agorism, said, they're literally micromanaged by those people. And I think that Bernie Sanders really showed, I mean, that they will have their select defined can look i don't even agree with bernie sanders on very much of anything but i did not like how he was treated how he was treated was wrong how ron paul back in 2012 was treated was wrong they shut him out of the convention and for for good or for ill this is the sentiment that donald trump manifested from this is the sentiment so i think that if anything the elites at the top have to realize that continually engaging in decadence, continually engaging in censorship, continually engaging in selective treatment of candidates um, to your prescribed interests, as opposed to listening to who the voters want, and more importantly, listening to what principles and truth justify, they're going to they're gonna have a lot of trouble. They're going to have a lot of trouble. And so... Well, but how... Well, you say they're going to have a lot of trouble. I think they would say right now, um, the Democrats who were in that group would say, no, we're doing fine. Thank you, Christian. And the, Republican, <laughs> and the Republicans would say, oh, we'll be back. Don't worry, Christian, we'll be back in two years. So I, I don't know, um, we, what we need is more awareness among the people of this, this duopoly, what's called the corporate duopoly of the two parties, uh, both of whom are too beholden to these corporate interests. We'll, we'll see, but uh, I do think the American people, I will put my bet uh, with the American people. And I think our history proves that even though it can take a lot of time and the route can be very circuitous, we do ultimately find our way to a better path and better times. And I do have confidence that that will happen. Well, Miss Williams, oh, Marianne, Marianne, sorry, Miss Williams, Marianne, thank you so much for coming on my show. I, I am beyond grateful. Um, this was a phenomenal conversation. I hope to have you back in the future. Um, just thank you so much. I appreciate your time and I appreciate you. You know, even if we don't agree all the time, I appreciate you being the bright voice that you are in the political spectrum today. Well, thank you. And I think where you and I agreed were well, the more important things and where Absolutely. we where we disagree, that just takes a conversation to work it out. So thank Absolutely. you so much. No problem. And as for all of you, please stay pensive. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.